Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. This week, let's see if those hot cross buns truly were a dish that anyone could make, or if they surprised either of your hosts. We'll also take on a new challenge, the famous triple-layer orange marmalade cake from the Mitford series by Jan Karen. And we'll sit down at our own kitchen tables to discuss this month's preheated book club pick, Chef Greg Atkinson's memoir, At the Kitchen Table. So put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet talk. Stefan, I have my eye on a new cookbook that came out just last week. Oh, it is called Indian-ish. Love it. And it's by Priya Krishna. She is a writer for Bon Appetit. And the reason this got brought to my attention was my April issue of Bon Appetit magazine. She included a recipe for a cardamom bread pudding. (laughs) You ran right out to get that cookbook, I'm assuming, then. Well, I am going to run right out to get it. And guess what about this bread pudding made me so excited? Aside from the cardamom. Right. Aside from the cardamom, which as you and other listeners know, I'm currently obsessed. My current spice obsession. Okay. Does it have to do with the bread that she uses? Nope. Then I got nothing. (laughs) (laughs) It's no bake. A no bake bread pudding? A no bake bread pudding. Tell me more. I know. There is still a little bit of work happening behind the scenes. So you are heating a heavy cream. And I'm thinking if you wanted to make this with coconut milk, you could if you didn't want to use heavy cream. Okay. And you are, what would I say, toasting Mm -hmm. kind of the bread Mm -hmm. so that it's getting cooked. But then you mix it all together. You put it in the pan and then you refrigerate it anywhere from overnight to two days. Wow. So it's almost like a banana pudding, how you soften those vanilla wafers in the pudding. It's kind of having that same softening effect. I think that's a good way to think about it. Yes. I. The reason I'm so excited about this, I love serving a bread pudding for breakfast. And of course, you can make it ahead of time. Mm-hmm. But you still have to wake up, heat your oven, and cook it. Yeah. Especially if it's been frozen, it can take sometimes up to an hour to yeah. get ready. Yeah. And I just love the idea of being able to wake up and pull something out of my refrigerator and start serving it to people. So I'll let you know after I try this one. I'm pretty excited about it. You know, it's just one of the several reasons I love you so much because you're like, I love serving bread pudding at breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) I love that too. I love eating bread pudding at breakfast. Well, I feel like bread pudding is basically French toast with some cream Mm -hmm. on it. Yep. So. Me too. I don't feel like that's too crazy. I love it. Well, keep us posted on that cookbook and also on that bread pudding. It sounds delicious. Will do. Andrea, it is our Literary Bakes Month, and one of the reasons we chose this month is that it coincided nicely with a United Nations designated day coming up this week, actually, tomorrow, April 23rd, if you're listening to this in real time, and that is the World Book Day. Andrea, did you know about this before we stumbled upon it? No, I was not aware of this, so tell me all about it. I love it. So it's a designation by uh, UNESCO, which is probably an acronym that listeners have heard, and that actually stands for the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. And this is a celebration to promote the enjoyment of books and reading. Each year on 23rd April, 
Collaborations take place all over the world to recognize the magical power of books, a link between the past and the future, a bridge between generations and across cultures. Oh, I love that. Isn't that just a poetic description of what this day is? It's really about championing not only the book itself, but the art of bookmaking, the art of illustrations and libraries and publishers and teachers and kind of everything there is to do about books. Now every year for the celebration the UN chooses a world book capital and this year it's Sharjah in the United Arab Emirates. So that's where there'll be all day long, actually all year long celebrations and just a really festive year long, I mean celebration. I love this so I'm really happy that we did a theme month that fell so nicely with this World Book Day. I know. Maybe if I'd known sooner, I could have planned a little trip to the UAE there to help them celebrate. It's not too late. It's the whole year. They are the World Book. Oh. Yeah. Oh, they get the honor for the whole year. They Indeed, they do. I wonder if cities compete for that like they do for the Olympics. They do. In fact, right now, if you go to the UNESCO website, this is so interesting that you ask this, they are taking applications for 2020. Oh, my gosh. So maybe it's time for Olympia Washington to put in a bid. You know, I will have to talk to our mayor and see yeah. what we can do there. I, I have some ideas. Well... That would be fantastic. Oh, thanks for teaching me about that. That is super fun. You yeah. know how much I love books, and I yeah. know our readers love books so much. So that's really an interesting thing to be thinking about is how books affect people all the world around. Absolutely. And if you want any more information, you can go to UNESCO, UNESCO.org. Stefan, this week's recipe review is the hot cross buns from food blogger Megan over at Culinary Hill. Culinary Hill is a website that specializes in Midwestern foods, and I liked this recipe for a couple of reasons, but one being that she said it was so easy anyone could make it, so <laughs> that got me very excited. And secondly, what was really nice is on her website, you have the option of doing the U.S. measurements or the metric measurements, so obviously that works really well for yeah, you and I. Right. Why don't you kick us off and tell us what you thought about these hot cross buns? Well, first, maybe we should remember what Beatrix Potter said about hot cross buns in her children's classic. That would be, of course... Peter Rabbit. Yes, yes. Thank you. I almost forgot who inspired us to make these hot cross buns. Yes. What did Beatrix Potter have to say about them? Then old Mrs. Rabbit took a basket and her umbrella and went through the road to the baker's. She bought a loaf of brown bread and five currant buns. And currant buns, of course, currants, a huge starring role in a traditional hot cross bun. Yeah. I liked this recipe a lot. It was very, very straightforward. And in last episode when we introduced them, I said that I had a lot of experience eating hot cross buns because it's a bake that my mom often did at Easter time, but not as much experience making them. I, I have made them a time or two, but it's not one I regularly am whipping up. Yeah, I've made it a couple of times, but it's been several years since I've made it. Yeah, me too. I thought this was a pretty foolproof recipe. I also liked the difference being that you bake them off in a 9 by 13 pan. And that is different than many hot cross buns that I've seen in which you shape them individually and let them rise and bake individually. More like a cookie on a cookie sheet. Mm -hmm. I know that was different for me as well. And I do think that that appealed to me because it's just sort of that one pan idea and with her frosting tip which maybe we'll get to when we talk about the glaze yeah it also makes it a lot easier to frost them absolutely 
My one concern right off the bat, and actually my only concern with this recipe, was the yeast. She says active dry yeast. When I went to look on my active dry yeast, it insisted that I needed to bloom it in some liquid. But in this recipe, you are adding the yeast directly to the dry ingredients. And in that kind of situation, I always would use my rapid rise yeast. So that is what I did. However, my yeast dough did rise then rapidly, so I did not go for either of the full amount of rising times specified here. I think it was fine. I do not think my dough was overproved. It billowed up just absolutely beautifully during both rises, and I had no other concerns as far as texture or anything like that went. But I am wondering what you did with the yeast there, Andrea. Well, we have a really good comparison here because I did use active dry yeast. I did mix it directly into the flour, and mine also rose really well. Great. But not rapidly. It did take the two hours that she specified, and I did rise it as she suggested in the oven. Mm -hmm. She uses a technique similar to Alexandra Stafford does from Bread Toast Crumbs, where you preheat your oven for just a tiny minute just to get it up to about 100, 120 degrees, and then you put your bowl of dough in your oven to do the rise. So I checked mine at two hours. It was doubled in volume. That was great. And then when I uh, rolled it out and cut it into pieces and let those rise for a second time, she said about an hour until they're doubled in volume and touching. Mm -hmm. And that was exactly how long mine took as well. Perfect. Yes. I think otherwise this is really straightforward. I ended up using raisins and I thought that worked really nicely. I thought there was two things that were really important in this recipe and one of them was the raisins or the currants. I thought maybe my raisins would be a little bit too big for these but these buns were so big actually that the raisins were the perfect proportion. Yep. They also add a lot of moisture and that is something that historically I have noticed about hot cross buns. Not just this recipe. I want to be really clear. They're a little bit on the dry side. And Mm. one thing that I did notice in this recipe, she very kindly calls out the calorie count at the top, which usually I try my best to avoid. But each one of these (laughs) buns was about 240 calories, which, you know, for a sweet dough, that's actually quite a diet food as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Now, I cut this recipe in half, so I only made (laughs) six of them. Um, And I used currants. So it's so fun because we've each done something really different. And I agree, those currants are necessary for that sweetness. And it's so funny. I had that same thought on hot cross buns in the past, whether I've made them or purchased them from the grocery store, there's been a part of me that's like, oh, these would be really good if you just extended that glaze all over the top. But I I feel like that's sort of a little, I don't know, sacrilegious. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of goes against the frosted, yes, right. Goes against the thematic elements of the cross on top. But I mentioned in our last episode that I did that once by accident because I did not let them cool completely. And yeah. so I, I did my crosses and then it melted. Well, at that point, I just threw more glaze on and um, that was yummy. So you can make just a glazed bun or a glazed currant bun, perhaps you would call it something like that, if you'd like a little more moistness and sweetness. I had that exact thought. It's it's so funny. She has a great tip for the frosting. And one of the reasons the benefits of doing it in the 9 by 13 is that you can just do a kind of continuous line down one row, down another row, and then come back the other way. So frosting is actually quite easy. But I had enough left over that I did consider just frosting the entire top of a few buns. I do think it added some nice moisture, so I wouldn't skip that step for aesthetics or you know any other reason, but it does add that nice hit of 
of moisture and, and makes the bun that much better. So I liked these. They are very festive. They remind me of my mom. So this was a win for me. Agreed. I have a couple of notes on things I did differently. I've already mentioned I cut the recipe in half. That worked really easily. There is one egg in the recipe that's a little trickier because I did beat it and then weigh it and then okay. use half of it. You know, that's that's something that's not quite as easy to cut in half. Otherwise, everything else was easy to cut in half. And then on the half a teaspoon ground cinnamon, you know how after the holidays, everything goes on sale? Sure. This year, King Arthur put a sale on after the holidays, and it was a three-pack of what I would think of as their holiday spices. Okay. So it was speculos, and I think one called Yuletide Cheer, and then one uh, a chai spice. So okay. I pulled that chai spice out, and that's what I used. You know, it's not a huge amount of uh, cinnamon, or in my case, chai spice, in the recipe. So I thought it was interesting. It made it a little bit different than what you were expecting. Mm. The ingredients in the King Arthur flour chai spice are ginger, cinnamon, cardamom, allspice, anise, and black pepper. Mm. Nice. Since I cut the recipe in half, it was only a quarter teaspoon for six buns. So again, it's not like it's knocking you over the head and, and yeah. you know, making you go, oh my gosh, this is so different. Sure. But it, it did, you know, it did kind of make you go, oh, that's that's kind of fun. I followed the recipe with no problem. Instead of using the 9 by 13 I grabbed my pie dish. I wish I had grabbed my cake pan because, of course, the sides of the pie dish are slanted. Got it. So if I did that again, I would, I would do the, my 9-inch cake pan instead of my my pie dish, but the pie dish turned out fine. From a weight perspective, when I um, had my dough ready to go and I was shaping it into the tightly mm-hmm. formed buns in step five, I had 450 grams total of dough. So each one of my buns was 75 grams. That was fun that it worked out so perfectly. <laughs> it's really nice and good on you for measuring that too. I eyeballed. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I was proud of myself there. And then I want to point out something in step six that I think is probably so obvious to everyone in the world who bakes, and it literally had never occurred to me until she wrote this instruction. And that is, she says, cover the buns with plastic wrap coated with nonstick spray. Can I tell you how many times I have put plastic wrap over something that's rising, and then I go to pull it off, and it ruins that nice, tight, beautiful, rounded bun, and I always think like, oh, that's so annoying. You know, (laughs) why didn't it occur to me to put nonstick spray on my plastic wrap? Because it seems it seems like one of those instructions that's just like, yeah, yeah, that's not really going to do anything. I Nothing guess. really sticks to nonstick, nonstick wrap anyway. Well, it, it does. does. And that I've had that experience and it definitely is worth a quick shot of the of the spray. Yeah. yeah. So that worked great and it peeled off right, you know, super easy. And my second rise took one hour. I didn't do my second rise in the oven. I, I just did that one on the counter and it did take about an hour. I baked them at 375 degrees. I did the egg wash. That turned out just fine. And then I made a tiny mistake. I don't know why I did this, but you know how when you get a range for time that you should bake? And so in this case, in step seven, she says 20 to 25 minutes. Yeah. Typically, what I'll do is set my oven. For example, what I would normally do for a 20 to 25 minute bake, I'd set my oven for like 17 minutes or 18 minutes. And sure. then I'd check yes. it then yes. by just turning the light on. I wouldn't open it up. And if they look like they needed to keep browning, I'd I'd reset it for another two or three minutes. And then at 20 Mm -hmm. minutes, if they look brown, I would pull it out. And I do use my digital thermometer. I have one of those little thermopen things to see if the interiors Mm -hmm. have reached 190. I've had to start doing that because I've turned out some sourdough loaves recently that weren't quite cooked all the way through. And that was a bit disappointing. Okay, yeah. But 
I don't, again, I can't explain why I inexplicably did this. I set my timer for 25 minutes. You just saw the last number. I think so. And so I didn't, you know, I was, I was in the kitchen. I was in the area, but I wasn't looking at them. And the timer went off and I got up and I walked to the oven. And I turned the light on and boy, were they brown. Yeah. So um, I just wanted to point that out because, of course, we'll post pictures. And I didn't want anyone to think uh, that was anyone's fault other than mine. They still ate well. So um, that deep brown color was not a problem. Yeah, they just looked a little toastier. I think I did yeah. mine. I know I did mine for exactly the 20. And that worked out just great for me. I liked the color and I liked the texture at 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I ended up giving these to two different sets of friends. And they both really liked them. They both were very familiar with hot cross buns. And one of my friends said, oh, this tastes like home to me. And I just thought that was such a lovely compliment. It made me so happy to hear that. So uh, these are a very traditional recipe, obviously, all over the world. And if you are looking for a new bake or an old favorite this Easter, I think this is a great one. I agree. I I love a recipe that makes someone feel nostalgic because that's a lot Mm -hmm. of what we try to do with baking is not – not just give people something to eat, but give them a memory that we want to share. So yeah, thanks for I sharing loved it. that. I love that. Well, moving on, Andrea, we have one heck of a final bake to see us out this Literary Bakes Month. This is the triple layer orange marmalade cake from the Mitford series by Jan Karen. Now, the only reference I really have for this cake, having not read the Mitford series, is back when we did our fresh pear pie in pie month this year in February and your pie was mysteriously stolen or disappeared and you said (laughs) this is just like the triple layer marmalade cake from the Mitford series. So Andrea, why don't you tell us what's behind this triple layer orange marmalade cake? I happily will. I first learned about this cake in 1994 when I first read Jan Karen's book, the Mitford series at the time, of course, it was just the first book. And in the first book, the main character in the book, Father Tim, almost goes into a diabetic coma when oh. he eats this orange marmalade cake. Oh, no. After that first book, the cake is then referenced many, many times throughout the series. The orange marmalade cake, or the OMC, as they sometimes call it. <laughs> Has, you know, several plot points. Of course, the one about it being um, there was someone hiding in the bell tower of the church. And one day he just couldn't resist. He had to take it out of the church refrigerator. So, you know, the OMC was stolen. It's involved with wedding cakes. It's involved with cooking contests. There is one year where Esther goes shopping with her husband to buy all the ingredients because she gives seven of her friends this cake every year at the holidays. Whoa. At which point she realized how expensive it is to make it and starts thinking maybe this isn't worth it and so that's sort of a a little sideline story so it's just really interesting how this cake weaves its way in and out of the series in 2004 jan karen published a cookbook called jan karen's mitford cookbook and kitchen reader because she said one of the most common questions she got ever since the first book was published 10 years prior was what's the recipe for the orange marmalade cake sure And she kept saying, it's fiction. There is no recipe. (laughs) Use your imagination. (laughs) Yeah. And she's she says she's not a real big cook. You know, she says the most extensive thing she does is a roast chicken and that's it. You know, so it's not even really her thing, like to be like, oh, what a great idea. So of course for the cookbook, you know, they they hired recipe developers and a cookbook author and that type of thing. But I just found that really interesting that 
you know, someone can write so well about something mm. that you just firmly believe that it mm-hmm. must exist. Yeah, yeah and, absolutely. You know, she would she would try and tell her reading audiences, like, I don't know, doesn't exist. Right. <laughs> Use your favorite orange marmalade cake recipe. Yeah. We are linking to this one from Epicurious. As Andrea said, it comes from the uh, Mitford Cookbook and Kitchen Reader. This is a very involved cake. Andrea, I don't think we have done this involved of a cake since last spring when we did the royal wedding cake. No, it's completely giving me a flashback on the royal wedding cake. I think that was episode 76, a cake worth celebrating. Yes, yes. The reason it's making me think of that, that particular cake, I had to call in my dear friend Wendy because I was so intimidated (laughs) by that cake. But now I feel like, okay, I made that cake with her. And I think the one thing that I understand that I didn't understand prior to making uh, that elderflower cake is that you do not whip out a cake mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. or a layer cake. You yes. don't whip out a three-layer cake. Yes. It is something you do in stages. Mm-hmm. It is something that each stage can be separate. Yep. And I'm used to desserts. I don't know. Maybe cookies are the best example. You kind of usually do them in one bowl. You pop them in the oven. They're out 20 minutes later and you start eating them, you know? <laughs> Sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah, this is not going to be that. I'm also always challenged with cakes because with only three people in my family, we certainly are not going to be finishing this thing ourselves. So I've got to find an event or something coming up where I can actually serve this to more people. So it involves me looking at my calendar and then sort of planning backwards for, okay, now I know the event that I'm doing. When can I make the cake Mm -hmm. layers? And when can I make the filling layers? And when can I make the frosting layers? So I'll be doing a little bit of that planning behind the scenes. And hopefully, fingers crossed, I can get this done by myself and not have to call in reinforcements. Well, I think you make a really good point that a cake is something that you can do in sections. And one thing that's I just want to call out, I'm not sure how you're looking at this recipe, Andrea, but mine, when I printed it off of the website, the different sections in the preparation and instructions, they just kind of run together. And so the first thing I did was just take a highlighter and highlight the different sections. It becomes less overwhelming to say, okay, these are the dry ingredients for the cake. Here's the wet ingredients for the cake. I need to zest my orange into this buttermilk. Instead, when they were all running together, it just felt like one huge big block of to-dos. And that really, it wasn't helpful to me as a baker to read it that way. I don't know how how it looks on other devices or other ways people might be looking at it. But if you are printing it off, that's my suggestion. Somehow section off those sections that make sense to you. And I did the exact same thing. I did definitely print this off because it's so huge. Yeah. So I first highlighted cake under the preparation section. And then if you go about uh, five more sentences down, you'll see orange syrup. I highlighted that. The next thing you'll see is filling. I highlighted that. And then you'll see frosting. I highlighted that. And then you'll see cake assembly. And I highlighted that. Yeah. There's kind of five distinct sections, and I agree with you. It's really nice if you can sort of separate them. I also would like to point out when you're doing your planning for this that it does say you need to chill it for at least two hours before serving. It does. So again, not something you're whipping out at the last minute. And for me, Andrea, cake flour is not available in the UK, nor I believe in any EU countries because it uses bleached flour. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of kitchen math here. You take a cup of all-purpose flour, you take away two tablespoons of the flour, and you add back the equivalent of corn 
starch or corn flour as I would call it here. So I will put up a little link in the show notes for this episode, but that is an easy way to make it yourself. You know, the fun thing about us baking on both sides of the Atlantic is you always have to do the homemade cake flour and I always have to do the homemade self-rising flour. (laughs) It's one or the other. I think I'm just going to set aside a goodly amount of time for this and pack my patience Mm -hmm. and I'm hoping for a real showstopper of a cake. Me too. Fingers crossed. So remember, we will have links to both the hot cross buns from Megan at Culinary Hill and the triple layer orange marmalade cake from the Mitford series reprinted on Epicurious. We'll have both of those in the show sheets for this episode, which is episode 121 on preheatedpodcast.com, as well as on our Facebook group, Preheated. Stefan, in this month of literary bakes, it wasn't enough that we were looking at books and pulling recipes out of them for our weekly bake-alongs, but we also decided to read a book (laughs) full of recipes. Been a busy month. Just to really fully celebrate the entire month. So why don't you tell us how Greg Atkinson's At the Kitchen Table came to your attention? Well, I was lucky enough to be given this book for Christmas by loyal listener Christy. And she is a big fan of Greg's restaurant out on Bainbridge Island. So she actually got me a signed copy. I'm feeling so very important. I know. But mostly what she said and what I found to be true is that this is a book about the heart of the home and about why eating is important, why making food from your kitchen is important, and the wonderful memories that it brings up about people that you've loved, people in your life, people that you've learned from, and all of those ways that we gather those food memories throughout our life. Also, I absolutely loved that it had recipes because there's nothing I love more in a food memoir when you are reading about a particular ingredient or a particular meal and then lo and behold it's there at the end of the chapter yeah i was really happy about that too and what i most loved was seeing inside his mind Mm. of how he makes things almost all of his recipes started out with another recipe did you notice that he would say well i took this um you know from nancy silverton's book and i changed it this way or i took this from so-and-so's recipe and i changed it that way and that's how i bake and cook a lot so that made me really happy to see oh that's what uh you don't have to start from scratch you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time like just take a recipe and then you know make it the way it's specified and if you like it great and if you want to change some things go from there and that's how so much cooking i think in families comes about you know you'll have grandma's pot roast and in fact he talks about that in one of my favorite chapters and then he talks about how he can modify that or how he does it another recipe in a vegetarian way or I think that's such a nice expression of love when you take something that's so familiar to you and then you make it special for yourself as well and the people that you're feeding I, I loved that about this book I would like to go ahead and read a excerpt from the chapter on school lunch and <laughs> that was one of my one of my favorite chapters now he starts off by talking about some of the school lunches that he grew up with yeah. and what i especially appreciated was this section where one day his mother packed some chili for him mm-hmm. in a thermos mm-hmm. and he was i think at this point about 16 and he was saying how you know kids are um Oh, he was 12. Kids are just so judgmental. So it says, in early October, mom sent me off with a thermos bottle full of leftover chili. It was so utterly outré. (laughs) 
I was 12 at the time, that age when identity is associated with all sorts of things, that age when one would never be caught dead eating something like chili from a thermos bottle. I opened the thermos bottle and globbed some of the stuff into a little plastic dish that came with the bottle. What is that? Screamed a girl from across the table. I think it's chili, I answered humbly. Gross, came the consensus. I ate the saltine crackers that mom had thoughtfully provided and drank my milk. I stared at the chili for a while, and then I poured it back into the thermos bottle, sealed it up, and determined I would never be subjected to this kind of humiliation again. (laughs) For the rest of that school year, the chili remained entombed in that thermos in my locker. (laughs) It's such a 12-year-old. It's such a 12-year-old boy thing, too. You can just imagine that at the end of the year. I mean, I'm sure the thermos had to be just thrown away he did and his mom was asking about it for a long time and he she finally gave up asking and this was such a great chapter for me because in elementary school making lunches for my daughter in a thermos was a key for me I did it all the time yeah me too and when she switched to middle school suddenly she didn't want to bring Mm -hmm. the thermos anymore Mm -hmm. and I never really quite understood it you know I thought well maybe you know it gets sort of tossed around because she does have to share a locker and so maybe you don't have as much control over your food or you know but now that I read this I thought oh you know it could just be one of those things that kids are just really weird at this age and they might just look at something and go oh that's so disgusting they don't want to be different right they don't want to stand out or stick out even though it's his mom's delicious chili which you know he he loves and has fond memories of but he won't eat it in that situation and and I think the book does a really good job of talking about the locations and the situations and why food tastes different or better depending on where we are and who we eat it with. Yeah, definitely. So I referenced a little bit, one of my favorite chapters was called On Cypress Street, and it's talking about his grandma and this very quintessential homemade recipe of some pot roast and different kind of Sunday meal type of dishes. And he ends with a cake, Andrea, and I immediately flagged it because it reminded me of you. And it was the one, two, three, four fudge marble pound cake. Now, didn't you talk about a one, two, three, four cake earlier this season or maybe late last season? I did, yeah. When I was talking about trying to bake without recipes, that's when I had found that. I enjoyed reading that particular recipe and it did sound good to me. Yeah, and I love this too because um, it says here, I mean, it's made in a bunt, so we love that. And love. So he's talking about how when he was growing up, cake mixes were the thing, but that this is a homemade version of the cake mix pound cake and fudge cake. So I loved that and it just sounded like um, a really nice bunt to, to make up, to whip up. Yeah. The chapter that I smiled at uh, quite a bit was called It's a Good Thing, and that's because it references Martha Stewart and the time when he had to cook for her. Right. And, you know, whether you love Martha or hate Martha, it's, I think, fun to read about her. And he talked about how she popped into the kitchen, and he was Mm -hmm. very anxious about having her pop in. And, you know, she said, oh, don't be worried. I love everything. And he was like, yeah, right, you know. (laughs) But um, I just really enjoyed how when he was planning that particular meal, 
a lot of what he did is what you and I try to do, which is he just went through mm. his pantry. You know, he yeah. had just ordered a, one of those big deliveries of those grapefruits. And so he had this big batch of grapefruit. So he made this wonderful grapefruit and goat cheese salad. Yeah. A friend of his who is a flight attendant had recently given him some grits. And he said yes. he had those in his cupboard. And so he thought, well, what goes well with grits? And that's how he came up with short ribs. And uh, finally, he served oysters from Totten Inlet. And of course, that yeah. speaks to me because that's one of those five fingers that the Puget Sound ends in, a Totten Inlet. And I live nearby, over by Eld Inlet. And so it was like, oh, he's eating my oysters and Martha ate our oysters. And yes, so exciting. Yeah. I really thought about you in that part of the book, as well as the part where he's talking about the food from New Orleans, because he's talking about making red beans and rice and beignets. And those are foods I always associate with you as well. Yeah, it was really interesting reading this book. I didn't read it sequentially. And I I kind of like it for that reason. I love books where you can just pick up and read a chapter and not necessarily have to start at the beginning and read to the end. That's a good point about this book. Yeah. And so I got to a certain point, there were so many references to things that reminded me so much of my childhood or the way he talked about New Orleans food or the, you know, he would often mention the Gulf in terms of fish from the Gulf or seafood from the Gulf. And I started thinking, I think he must be from New Orleans. But then, of course, I looked it up and he's from Pensacola and there's chapters where it's it's clear that he's from Pensacola and he talks about yeah. the Florida food. I mean, that whole story about the Florida fish fry yes. was really fun. Yeah. My final chapter that I loved was called A Better Brand Muffin. And you can probably guess why I love this one. Number one, he talks about a raisin puree and why why you would want to do that. So I thought that was fabulous. And then um, number two is I'm always on the lookout for you ever since you accidentally ordered six pounds of wheat germ for yes, recipes yes. that use quite a bit of it. Now, this particular recipe uses wheat bran, but it uses a full two cups. And I had thought to myself – I think on a previous episode, I had sort of wondered aloud, you know, whether there was a difference. So I actually looked it up now. And the wheat bran is the exterior of the wheat. The wheat germ is the interior. But in baking, you can substitute them one for one. So I don't know if you read this chapter, but I'm thinking this might be a good one for you. This is so funny. Of course, I flagged this immediately. And the minute I read it, almost the next instant, I ran to the kitchen and I made this recipe. Oh. I was so excited. I had the exact thought that you did. I thought, finally, I can <laughs> really make a dent in that wheat germ. Yeah. I am cooking up my own. I think Greg Atkinson would approve, actually. I'm making up my own variation of this recipe that uses a date puree. It also has some blackberries. It's a vegan muffin, actually. I made it with my friend Angelique in mind, and I'm really excited. I hope to have that up on the preheated site soon because I was so inspired by this muffin, and I think it is an excellent one. I think the one in the book is fantastic, and I think my version is going to be a good one, too, if I do say so myself. Well, and I just love this because it's such an evolution. You know, he started with Nancy Silverton's recipes and he made his changes. And now you're taking his recipe and you're making your changes. Um, So I know his recipe does have one egg. So did you use aquafaba instead? I sure did. Okay. All right. Perfect. Yep. 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 So I have some other ingredients in there as well, but uh, I think they turned out. I've made it a few times now. I've given them to my friend and her daughter and they had great reviews for me and I'm really fine-tuning it so I'm really excited about that one I can't wait to see that one up 
Well, the chapter that I really liked too, Andrea, was about Greg's brother who uh, has sadly passed away, but he has a kind of a signature, kind of two signature desserts actually, and one is a takeoff on like a Bananas Foster called Bananas Flipper. His uh, brother's nickname was Flip. And then the other though is a peanut butter fudge, and I just have to read the intro to that because I thought it was so charming. Yeah. This is called Mom's Peanut Butter Fudge. My mother's mid-20th century aesthetics prompted her to keep a pantry well-stocked with evaporated milk, which she called canned cream. Her idea of good peanut butter was the improved kind that contained enough sugar and hydrogenated oil to prevent it from separating at room temperature. But here he goes again, right? He's going to kind of fiddle with those Mm -hmm. things. Influenced by the natural foods movement that swept the country during my formative years, I go for all natural, preferably organic peanut butter with no additives, and I'm not partial to evaporated milk. Nevertheless, when all is said and done, my peanut butter fudge is almost indistinguishable from my mother's. So there you have it, kind of coming back full circle to a place where you start and you make your variations, but at the end of the day, you're still really reminded of the original recipe. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating how at the end of the day, he his recipe and his mother's recipe tasted about the same. So that's exactly. great. Yeah. Well, it was really fun to do Greg Atkinson's book this month during our Literary Bakes Month, and we would love to know if you've had a chance to pick it up and read along with us. We'd love to know what you thought. You can comment in our Facebook group, Preheated. You could send us an email, hosts at preheatedpodcast.com. And of course, it's never too late to pick this one up if you're looking for a great read with great recipes. Again, that was called At the Kitchen Table by Greg Atkinson. Well, the timer's buzzed, and we've got to get the icing onto this show. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and next week, we'll find out if that famous orange marmalade cake was really worth stealing. Then we'll wrap up our month of literary bakes with a classic British treat that English sleuth Maisie Dobbs always makes time for. And finally, since April has five Mondays, we'll award our coveted blue ribbon for the literary treat we loved most. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at Preheated Pod. If you like our show, please tell a friend and subscribe. And consider ranking and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download our podcast. Until next time, I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Thanks for listening and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stephen Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions.